0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. There is a big world of venture capital investing outside the EIS and VCTs that we usually focus on. Sprout is looking to make this accessible to retail investors, and its CEO, Johnny Blawston, comes on to discuss the GPLP market. He talks about how it works, how it differs from tax advantage market, and how he selects funds. He have examined the VCs market in great depth, so it brings lots of superb insights. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the links in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Johnny Blaston who is CEO and co founder of Sprout. Welcome to the podcast, Johnny. Hello, Brian. Thank you very much for having me on. It's absolutely our pleasure. As usual, we want to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became involved in venture capital?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm CEO and co-founder of Sprout. Before this, in in my prior life, I was a strategy consultant. So I spent uh, probably about seven and a half years with a business called Strategy and who were formerly known as Booze and then got acquired by PwC probably coming up to 10 years ago now. I spent probably 30% of my time doing traditional strategy consulting, so go-to-market, market market entry, pricing, growth strategy, things, Uh, and about 70% of my time working on M&A, so mergers and acquisitions, advisory, um, specifically around or primarily around mid-market private equity. So Uh working with and for private equity firms, looking at businesses they were either looking to buy and helping them decide whether or not they should buy it or helping them position businesses for sale around that. I was going through that kind of personal finance journey that I'm sure a lot of people listening mm-hmm. have gone on or are advising their clients through where I, you know, you do the check where my pension turns out it's all in the stock market. My ISA all in the stock market. I was fortunate enough to have bought my own flat. And like most people, uh, I probably realized that I was 99 plus percent exposed to, real estate and the public markets,
0: uh-huh.
1: which, you know, I'm sure we've had this conversation before. This is I had an economics degree. I'd spent seven and a bit years working in financial services. And that was the kind of extent of my personal portfolio, which didn't make a ton of sense. Obviously my priorities had been elsewhere. And I went through this whole kind of process of figuring out what I should be doing in my life. You know, with that, I was working day in, day out with private market funds, um, private equity, but also earlier stage. I worked on uh-huh. some early stage, I guess, late-stage venture or earlier-stage PE. Um, it's a bit of a blurred line in that in that world. Deals. Mm-hmm. And you look at all the data and you see that uh, the best-performing asset class of the last 20 years are the, are the private markets, and in particular, venture capital. All the big, you know, exciting stories that you see are you know, people investing early and riding things through to an exit. And when you look at the kind of analysis and surveys of, of the most sophisticated investors, so large family offices and big institutions, there's a reason that they're all investing quite substantially into venture capital. And it didn't make sense to me that, you know, from a regulatory perspective, I was completely able to do that in the UK. I was a professional investor, not a professional investor. I was a sophisticated investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people I work with as well also kind of meet the high net worth criteria, but I just wasn't investing in the private markets. And mm-hmm. that kind of took me on a journey of how do I access the upside of, of, of investing in, in, venture capital and, you know, how how do I set about that? Obviously I'd spent my life, uh, spent my career working on due diligence. So I was professionally trained in looking at businesses and trying to figure out if they were positioned to win and if they were good businesses to invest in. So I thought, well, I could probably use this in my personal life. Um, and the kind of the immediate obvious step is to try and do some early stage direct investing. So I did some angel deals. I looked around briefly, looked at the crowdfunding sites and, realized quite quickly that the quality just wasn't there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and did some direct angel deals. I saw through my network, but also even doing that, uh, became very aware that you're only as good as your deal flow. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was lucky to be probably, uh, more able to diligence these businesses than most. But if you're looking at average or bad businesses, they're average or bad businesses. Yeah. Did you join an angel network out of curiosity? I'm in a couple, I'm in some WhatsApp groups and like, It's genuinely scary when you see how and why people invest or don't invest. Um, Uh You know, I think angel investing is amazing for a lot of reasons. And there's a lot of good things. And we'll get into EIS in particular, right? I think it's a brilliant Uh scheme. It helps angels. It helps businesses. It creates jobs. But there's a lot of people who, you know, there are lots of reasons to angel invest. I think for a lot of people, if that motivation is primarily financial, they Uh probably shouldn't be angel investing. You know there are societal reasons to do it. There are helping friends out reasons to do it. Uh There are I want to fund certain technologies that change the world reasons to do it. If you're really looking to make money, I mean if you're not trained in investing and sourcing deals and you're primarily sourcing those deals from friends and family and and a small network, what are the chances that you're going to pick the good ones? And then within that, I think I you know I also realise that the best businesses pick their investors. Uh-huh. And often that means picking the best funds out there or, you know, a handful of super angels. You know, there's, there's a handful of super angels in the UK who, you know, really good companies will want on their cap tables, but it's not me. So if I'm, if I, if I somehow okay, find, I one of you- <laughs> yeah, who knows, you know, maybe one day. Um, but you know, if I, if I do all this work to source a deal and I somehow find an amazing deal, the chances are that that company's not going to want me on their cap table. So, there's an inherent uh, kind of adverse selection for angels that you also want to navigate, and it became very quickly a, a case of well, you know, if the best deals are going to the best funds, I want to invest in the best funds. And in the same way that, you know, in the, in the public markets you'd back a manager, it became very obvious that you know my view on the world, and I'll come on to my co-founders, but you know, we had the same conversation that it made a ton of sense for people who are not essentially professional venture capital investors to be trusting and backing the best managers rather than trying to do this themselves Mm -hmm.
0: okay so how did that actually lead to you founding sprout
1: yeah so i got together with i was talking to uh my best friend um i say at the time he still is my best friend just to clarify um about what he was doing so he he used to be an accountant or he still is an accountant um, and will always be one he Uh, Moved into the corporate finance world and then went to work in private equity. And we went through similar things at the same time. He was doing some interesting private equity deals, turnarounds. um, But during COVID, so you're looking back to 2020, the turnaround market was quite slow. He and the people he worked with looked to kind of deploy elsewhere and started doing some earlier stage investing and realized a similar thing, which was, you know, this is all about deal flow and most private investors are just not going to beat the best funds. We came at it from a different direction, but it was ultimately a realization that, you know, there's a number of barriers then for us investing into these funds. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got the knowledge barrier, which is, do you understand venture capital? Do you know how to find, do you know where to look? Do you know who the best funds are? Then if you find the best funds, do you actually have the relationships to get in, to receive an allocation, to be part of them? Because a lot of the best funds are hard to get into and or choose their investors. Uh And then even if you're able to get in, the very best funds typically have minimum investments or minimum checks in excess of a million and often five million pounds or more. And there's a number of barriers there. And and depending on the audience, it's a different barrier. So for a lot of professionals and people newer to this world, you've got all of them, right? You've got the, the education barrier, the knowledge barrier, the scarcity barrier, the time barrier. Uh-huh. and the ticket size. And then even, you know, actually you look at the individuals or the people who, who would be writing a million pounds or five million pounds into one fund in one year. And you realize that these funds aren't even accessible to, to kind of most large family offices. And you, you've therefore got an audience of everyone from professionals, business owners, high net worths, right through to ultra high net worths and family offices who probably should be deploying something. And we can come onto that that into, into uh-huh. venture capital funds. But aren't for whatever reason, either they aren't aware of it, they don't have access, they kind of know of it, but don't think they can get in. And we needed to solve this problem. So Dan introduced me to a guy called Richard Abrahams, who co-founded a team within PwC called Raise Ventures. Mm -hmm. And Richard spent seven years coaching early stage startups through fundraisers and introducing them to some of the best funds in Europe. Rich has a black book of pretty much all the best funds in Europe, is very well known in the ecosystem, and uh, was able to get us access to A number of funds when we started and obviously we've gone out from there and we'll come on to that later on. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, you know, it doesn't make sense that all these people, I mean, the the barrier or the requirement to invest in VC funds in the UK uh, per FCA regs is you need to be a sophisticated investor or a high net worth individual at least. And, you know, that's not no barrier, right? It's not open to mass market retail, but it's still comfortably over a million people in the UK who could be investing in VC funds. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not a regulatory barrier. It's more a practicality barrier where if a fund's raising 100 million to invest, they might deploy that. Sorry, they might raise that from, you know, if you can find five people to give you 20 million each, why would you take 10,000 pounds from from me yeah, or 100,000 or a million from you? And we were like, well, if it's not a regulatory barrier, it's a practicality barrier. So at least that's easier to solve. Uh, what's the easiest way? What's the most practical way of doing this? Well, why don't we create an investment platform where, uh, professional investors, high net worths, and sophisticated investors can come, browse a curated selection of the best funds, and then transact through the platform. And that's essentially what Sprout is. So we go out, we look at the market, we have a system for diligencing and screening funds. Obviously, our backgrounds are all in that world, and we'll come on to that. Mm-hmm. We curate a selection of funds. We've looked at over 150 in the last year, and we've worked with five. And we do all the diligence, all the education, we do content. We do videos with the funds. We do events with the funds to educate our audience, and then they can transact from as little as five thousand pounds. But mm-hmm. there is no upper limit. So, you know, if you want to write a million or, or more into a fund, where the minimum is five million, absolutely come via us. Uh, I guess the other point, which is probably relevant for for this audience, and then I'll stop selling. Is <laughs> um, you know we are also working with B two B partners, so we're working quite closely with a number of IFAs, both managers and private banks, who are aware of the quality of venture capital, um, have not been able to offer it before to their clients for whatever reason, and are highly motivated to do so. And we're helping them work through that now. So yeah, that's about... Okay, excellent.
0: So awful lot to unpack in there. I, I I think for the sake of some of the listeners of this podcast, let's talk a little bit about institutional venture capital funds, which is really what you're focused on because I know most listeners will be familiar with ES funds and VCTs, but the sort of TPLP, general partner, limited partner structure that you're looking at works somewhat differently. So do you want to maybe tell us about what these funds are and how they work?
1: Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of similarities. Ultimately, they, they are fund managers looking to invest money on behalf of an end client. Uh, a GP LP fund. So the GP was the general partner, which is essentially the the fund itself, the fund manager itself, the people running the fund. The uh-huh. LPs, the limited partners, are the investors in the fund. So that might be me or you in this situation. The GP will raise a pot of money. Probably, I mean, I'm going to make make a number up right now. Call it 100 million pounds. Uh, with a, with a mandate, they will have a strategy. They will have a thesis for investing. They will have uh-huh. a, a stage of company they invest in. A geography they focus on. They will raise that. And look to invest that pot of money over, call it three to four years. It could be shorter, it could be a bit longer, but call it three Uh to four years. And look for a return in the eight to ten year range. Crucially, you know, there is no, they don't have to deploy it all in one year. They don't have to deploy it all in the fourth year. They can be opportune and sit there and wait for the best opportunities. Uh They do not have any tax benefits to this they are wholly motivated. And we talk about Sprouts Business, we talk about being kind of investment-led or returns-led. They exist simply to find the best investments that fall within their remit. Uh, typically, the people investing in these funds are the most sophisticated investors. You're looking at sovereign well, The larger funds, you're looking at sovereign wealth funds, you're looking at mm-hmm. larger institutions and family offices. Yeah, A lot of that is more to do with the, the ticket size requirements than anything else, and the best funds have found it so easy to raise capital in the past that they haven't really needed to go to a wider audience than that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think particularly the last few years, that's definitely been the case. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Then you have the EIS and VCT funds who are more tax-led. They are you know, looking to invest for returns, obviously, in the same way, um, but they have the upside of well, I say the upside for their investors of you know, tax relief on those investments, and we'll come to that. But they also have a number of restrictions around what they can and can't do with their money. And that's where you start to get into the differences, and we'll we'll come to performance later on. But there are a number of you know rules and situations that kind of sit around EIS and VCT. Uh, yeah. And the kind of differences between EIS, VCT funds, and LPGP funds start with the remit. But they go beyond that because there are knock-on implications that come from that. So obviously, the reason starts with an EIS fund has to invest in EIS-eligible companies. So what does that mean? So it means for a start, they're raising every year, whereas an LPGP fund might raise now and then not raise again for three or four years because they're still deploying that pot of money. Uh The EIS fund will be raising annually because they're going to Uh, you know, uh, correspond with the tax year and Mm -hmm. the incentives and requirements of the underlying investor. What does that mean? Well, if you think about this from a practical perspective, if you're an investment manager and I give you hundred million pounds now, and I say you need to deploy this over the next four years, you can be patient. If there aren't any good deals to do right now, you can wait. If you have to deploy that in the next 12 months, because I want my tax relief. You might wait for six months, but then your incentives start to change in the second six months of the year as you know that your client wants the tax relief.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And immediately you start getting a bit of a, an inverse um, or an adverse selection impact where a lot of, and this is not all of them, but you will have EIS funds that come to Q4 and suddenly they realize they have a lot of capital they need to invest. Otherwise they're going to have some unhappy investors. Uh-huh. So you can get some lowering of the bar. In fact, you do get some lowering of the bar in Q4 in the EIS industry as deploying starts to take priority over seeking out quality of return.
0: I I, I, I I think to be fair to EIS managers, I think there are the good ones, in my experience, raise the money they can deploy in decent companies.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be the counter argument to that. For sure. And I think that... You know, you use the phrase "the good ones" there, and you know that's another part of this, right? We've had this conversation separately, which is it's also very difficult for private investors to screen the market and know who the good ones are. Mm -hmm. The barriers to raising an EIS fund are often lower as well, and we come on to who you know who's raising EIS funds. We've seen accountants raising EIS funds, consultants raising EIS funds, etc. The good ones are very good, but Mm -hmm. it's actually quite hard to cut through the noise, and it's hard for You know, if I was going back to myself a few years ago, how do I know who they are? So that's also difficult. You also just have the fundamental restrictions around investing in EIS-eligible companies only. So there are clearly sector restrictions. You can't invest in banks, for example, early-stage banks, Mm -hmm. and geographical. So they have to be UK-based companies. So if you want exposure to investing in the US or the Middle East or Eastern Europe or wherever, you can't get that through EIS investing. Okay. So there are natural differences in, in kind of the types of investment you will get um, mm-hmm. and also the incentives at play. You also then have how the funds make their money. With an LPG fund, GP fund, it's, it's very simple. They typically take, and it will vary, but they typically take a 2% a year management fee and then a 20% a year carry, which is essentially a performance fee on returns over a sudden hurdle. The EIS funds can do this as well. But we've seen other fees that they charge. You might have an admin fee, you might have a transaction fee, you might have a finder's fee, and you might have fees levied on the companies. So, you know, we've seen, for example, admin fees that have gone up to as high as twelve percent from an EIS fund on a, on an individual deal. So, again, conceptually, the remit is raise money to invest, but there are a whole range of Incentives and kind of rules around what kind of EIS VCT funds can and can't do that kind of have implications for the investments they're making, ultimately the quality of investments they're making, and the return profile.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And in terms of
0: sort of the sort of things that these are investing in, you, you mentioned sort of geography and types of companies. Is there any difference mm-hmm. in stage as well?
1: Yes. So typically to be EIS eligible, that that's on the first 10 million raised. Um, and I think mm-hmm. VCT, it goes up to a 15 million value. I think it's enterprise value during the raise. Uh, 16 it, million
0: it, it, it's knowledge intensive companies is, is yeah. the restriction. EIS VCT rules are the same.
1: But VCT also goes higher as well. Um, so if it's knowledge intensive, there's also like, you know, the rule changes on the number of employees, for example, as well. But broadly it caps out at, Kind of that 10 million range. There's a, there's a lot around what well, inherently that means it's an earlier stage investment. So it might be, well, it's definitely pre seed and seed. It could be a very small series A. But the economics of a fund, and this is not really touched on a lot, the economics of VC fund investing, the way to really kind of make proper returns is to follow on in your winners. So you might have a, a high kind of initial. IRR our initial kind of rate of return on your initial ticket. So for example, an early stage fund might write a hundred thousand pounds check mm-hmm. into a business and that business could do very well, but your, your money is going to be made as a very high multiple on a hundred thousand pounds. The funds that do really well will typically have preemption rights or, or the ability to invest in future rounds as that company continues to grow mm-hmm. and deploy again and again into subsequent rounds. If, You can only invest in the first two of those rounds. There will be an inherent cap on the amount you can deploy and kind of the stages that you're investing in. Whereas if you're able to follow on and keep investing in that business through series A, B, C, through to IPO, your percentage return on investment comes down, but the absolute return on the fund should be much higher. And that's kind of one of the fundamental principles of VC fund investing, that EIS funds simply can't do just because of the restriction on the ticket size and stage they invest at.
0: Yeah, is there any effect on the you, you, on the IR about the holding time be, or the lack of or the deployment time, I should say? Because you mentioned earlier about how GPLP funds can take up to four years to deploy, and in essence, that means you have maybe a couple of years where you've invested cash and it's sitting idle. Presumably, that has a deflating effect on the returns of these funds.
1: Yeah, so, so in short, yes and no. The reason I say that is because LPGP funds will typically, the normal way of doing that is via capital calls, and they will manage IRR in a way that says, you know, people who invest in our fund, we're calling X amount up front. You actually call capital over a period of years in line with what you expect to deploy. Okay.
0: And is that yeah? And is that true even for the smaller investors you're talking about? So if you committed 10,000, you might be asked for, 5,000 now, 5,000, two years. So now we're getting onto
1: Sprout rather than VC fund investing right, yes. specifically. Um, <laughs> so, so the way we do it is typically the lowest the lowest fees, sorry, the lowest investment sizes. So if you're investing five to 50,000 typically via us, we would take that up front. Mm-hmm. There's a whole range of reasons for that around um, kind of risk management and process. That will impact IRR yeah. clearly. But the other thing, you know, we have regular conversations about IRR versus money multiple. Uh, (laughs) I I spoke to someone last week who had a very interesting view, which says uh, you can't spend IRR. Um, I think Rich says you can't eat IRR. It is important. It's more Uh important for family offices and larger institutions. The reason I say that is, you know, let me use myself as a really good example. Anecdotally, if I committed 5,000 pounds to a fund and actually you said to me, you can put 2,000 pounds in now and... 3000 over the next two years. Well, technically I'd get a better IRR, but there's a good chance that I would not do anything else with that money and it would sit in my bank account anyway. Mm -hmm. If you're a larger institution or a family office and you commit a million pounds and I take 40%, we take 40% now and 60% over the next two years, you probably have the opportunity to take up a short-term lending product or Something over six to twelve months that mm-hmm. is a bit more complicated, but will generate a return, and therefore the IRR upside is more meaningful. So it is situational. I think yes, ultimately, if you're not deploying cash that sits in a bank, it's going to improve your IRR. Okay. Um, but the opportunity cost is clearly lower where people don't have whether you call it the risk appetite or the the availability for kind of those short-term interest-bearing or other products.
0: Okay. Um, any other things about GPLP funds that we should know?
1: I think it's just the, it's the freedom. So you know, there, there's a whole <laughs> range of strategies in, across sector, stage, and geography that these funds you know, take up. I think you also don't see they're are a bit more cutthroat. You know, the ones that don't do well, it's much harder to raise again. I think it's it's there, mm-hmm. there are there are some. Um, there's there's some natural selection in this world, right? So there are some EIS zombies. There are some companies out there that are kind of key, either have raised a good amount of money and are still going and will fail at some point or whilst there's tax relief available, it's much easier to find people to invest in you. And mm-hmm. then at some point down the line, these businesses fail, but they've actually been kind of artificially sustained. In the LPGP world, it's a bit, it's a bit harder to get funding at that stage for businesses that are not performing. So you should see... the the kind of lower performing businesses drop off quicker and that will hit returns. But there's also a survivorship bias in all of these. The the LPGP Mm -hmm. funds that have been around for a while normally have good returns profiles because the ones that don't, don't raise again. Yeah. The best EIS funds, there are a handful that have been good EIS funds for five to 10 years. A lot of them moved to raising LPGP funds. So there are so a number you, of very good, of good L- ones,
0: you mean, or just a lot of EIS funds generally?
1: The, the, the good ones. So mm-hmm. there are a number of good LPGP funds now that started life as an EIS fund, proved themselves, and then made the switch
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it gives them more freedom, because it gives them the ability to invest how they want to invest rather than, you know, in line with certain restrictions or certain limitations. So that's actually quite a useful indicator of know, what the people in the industry think of the difference between the two the two types of fund as well. You you very rarely, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen a fund go the other way. Mm-hmm. But you do see that the best performing EIS funds look to raise LPGP funds as quickly as they can.
0: Yeah. And in terms of the sort of the fundraising for GPLP funds, my understanding is typically they're not always open. You've got someone will raise a fund, and it's only once they're sort of two-thirds or three-quarters of the way do- through deploying that fund that they will start on the next one. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, that, that's normally how it works. So raise a pot of money, go out to invest it along along your thesis, and when you are either fully deployed or nearly fully deployed and you have visibility that you're going to be unable to invest at some point in the future, you, you, you go back out and look to raise again. Ideally, with evidence of how that fund's performing or – Enough of a track record behind you that you've got a number of prior funds that you can point to anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I mean, the market will have the same issue as EIS in terms of it takes a decade to sort of, well, I mean, as you said, well, these GPL funds have a, have a lifespan of a decade, but even in EIS, it takes a decade for a fund really to mm-hmm. properly mature and, and, and exit. So, Anything that's less than a decade, you've only got sort of some sort of unrealized or partial track record.
1: Yeah, which is which is interesting. I think you know we'll, we'll come on to how we look at funds, but I think it's it's very important for investors and people looking at funds to understand. You know, yes, it takes eight to ten years to see how a fund's done. You can typically see, a, you can get some clarity within three to five years if there's a couple of early successes or if they all look less good but there is just that natural kind of long longer time to proof and you know the thing we would say is or i would say is there's so much choice out there that there are enough funds that have five ten plus years of track record or or, or evidence of success across multiple funds that you know there's also a lot of funds that are raising for the first time but have never invested before or the mm-hmm. the Partners at the fund have never invested before, or are raising a second fund like two years after raising the first fund, and there are some returns on paper, but they don't mean a lot. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, especially from earlier funds trying to. And it's hard, right? You, you, you raise a fund, you invest, and you go out to raise again, and you don't have that evidence,
0: uh-huh.
1: you know. And that that's a challenge. It's a challenge for the funds. I don't think it's a particular challenge for investors, because personally. I'd just wait and I'd look somewhere else, but it's a challenge for the funds and they all have different ways of communicating that.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've seen academic evidence or academic papers that suggest that new funds actually, on average, perform better in venture capital, obviously based on US data rather than sort of across here. But at the same time, I look at the way, say, new IS funds are saying, okay, we've been around for two years and look at our unrealized gains and this is fantastic, which is the same sort of thing that you speak about there. So there's definitely a te- some sort of tension there about new funds are not necessarily terrible, but trying to find which is the r- best new fund is not easy.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because th- th- I can share the academic paper with you after. There's There's a lot of evidence that essentially says you will get some outliers among the new funds. Mm-hmm. but actually it's a very low, I mean, it's a really low percentage of them.
0: It, it's a power law sort of thing. It's basically a few have done really well. It, it is. So the average a,
1: is quite high. It, it's a punt. So, you know, the data essentially says that whilst past performance does not guarantee future performance, mm-hmm. it's the best predictor. The most likely funds to be top quartile performing funds and in venture capital, you're talking kind of 30% plus net IRR to be in that or 25, 30% plus
0: mm-hmm.
1: the most likely, to be in the top quartile are the ones that have historically had a fund that's exited as in the top quartile. Yeah, um, You will get some outstanding performance from new funds, but A, it's a tiny percentage of the new funds, so you don't see the funds that have a complete write-off, and B, uh-huh. if you're looking at it on a returns basis, yes, but a lot of them are small. So, for example, we've seen first-time funds is like a million-dollar fund that did a 7x, which is great on paper. Mm-hmm but the reality is that was a million dollar fund or a million pound fund to did 10 investments at a hundred thousand pounds each one did a 70 X and nine failed. Mm -hmm. Now on paper, it looks great and it would kind of skew the results of whatever analysis you do. But the reality is that's, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that says this fund can repeat it. Whereas if you look at a fund that's, that's achieved 30% plus net IRR across three funds, they're all fully distributed cash back to investors. You look at that and you go, Oh, there's a process there, it's repeatable, they've done it, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. So there is a material difference now. That's for individual investors to decide which one's more attractive to them and which one, you know, because it's easy, all the data's backward looking, you're trying to look forwards when you invest. Uh-huh. The data pushes you one way, but it depends if people are kind of trying to chase a, you know, a, a moonshot or if they're trying to kind of optimize their their returns.
0: Yeah, there's certainly I see a little bit amongst retail investors. It's almost l- like a lottery mentality, and I think I think it's perhaps more prominent in crowdfunding, where people see themselves almost like we're buying a lottery ticket, and and we hope you know we're hoping for the stellar return, but they don't buy enough necessarily to get that um,
1: sort of return. And that and that I mean that's the the role of funds versus direct, right? I think my my mm-hmm. view is funds should not be. And this is not financial advice. I feel like I should say that <laughs> funds should not be the lottery ticket. Funds should be the bread and butter. You know, the the kind of strong returns. You know, we had a we had a separate chat, which sadly no one on this podcast was able to hear last week <laughs> about whether you know VC fund investing is actually high risk or if it's high variance. You know, the best funds they <laughs> they're down they down years they're down performing funds are still you know broadly in line with the stock market. They're not losing all your money. And I think you know, investing in funds should be something that is probably less punty, less moonshot, less lottery ticket. And if people want that, you because you also won't get. You're not going to get a thousand x from a fund.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're just not. But you no. might from a from a startup. And it's kind of that. It's the balance in your portfolio of the high risk direct investing with the yeah. more more sensible funds, and that's how typically the most sophisticated investors will target kind of upside. So how do you think
0: about portfolio construction? Because in essence, you are actually, if, you, if you've got a range of offers, you are constructing a mini portfolio, I guess, for investors.
1: Mm. Yeah. So so I guess the thing to, to caveat up front is, uh, again, that we don't construct portfolios. We don't advise. We, we curate and essentially uh, present a menu. Okay. So investors can choose a fund on your platform. Exactly, exactly. Within that, we always look to have diversification across Uh sector, stage, and geography. So sector, is it a tech, well, tech-focused fund is every fund. Is it a (laughs) biotech-focused fund? Is it a climate fund? Is it a B2B SaaS fund, et cetera? Uh, Stage, we touched on, but is it pre-seed, so, you know, idea stage, or is it seed stage, so revenue to scale, is it series mm-hmm. A, B, C, growth stage onwards? Uh, and then geography, self-explanatory. So you've got yeah. UK, you've got Europe, you've got US, you've got Middle East mm-hmm. broadly, but you've also got specific countries within that.
0: And Dean makes make sure there's an international perspective because it would have seemed to me if you're pitching at UK investors in particular, having that international thing would provide, you know, so someone who's already got an EIS or ECT might say, mm-hmm. well, actually, I want international exposure. This is a
1: way to get it. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I think both in terms of you know the role this plays alongside people who only invest in the UK but also if you're looking for kind of the the outliers the reality is that you know most most people are just heavily restricted on geography anyway and a lot of the the biggest companies in in Europe and a lot of the biggest companies in the VC ecosystem have come out of non UK company uh, countries You've also got hotspots for specific specific industries. Uh, you've got a lot of fintech coming out of Scandinavia, as one example, and yeah, absolutely. People are using us to get exposure to to countries where they just can't source deals and don't know don't know where to look for managers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned earlier about your fund selection, and I. As someone who spends all his time examining funds and sort of quasi-selecting them at times, um, I was really interested to see what you're doing. And You have this very nice thing called the Ten Ts. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it's worth actually listing them. But uh, I'm really interested about how you came to that list.
1: Yeah, so it started as a list of. Well, I, I guess if I rewind, so so when we started, we were mainly looking at historical returns and over time, we have looked at more funds, we've spoken to more funds, we've had more funds come to us. So the last six to nine months, we've really lent into, you know, because if you're in a room and I like a fund and I can kind of articulate why, but, you know, there's something strange about it. Maybe one out of the three funds isn't great, or maybe it's good returns on paper. How do you move away from a more subjective approach to a more evidence-based approach for fund selection because mm-hmm. it's not just all about that IRR number on a page. There's a whole range of things that come into it to, to when you're looking at a fund.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We started listing out a number of the criteria, right, and the obvious ones, and I'll lean back in. So what does the fund do? How do they pick companies? Who are the team? What were their returns historically? A lot of those intuitively makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we started building a scorecard uh, where essentially you you score each fund you look at uh, along those criteria. And it evolved because what you do is you play it back in and then you sense check if the funds you expect to come higher up do or don't. And where the funds that we know or logically are good funds are not performing as well, you play it back in and figure out what you're missing in your selection. So... As an example, um, there could be, you know, there'd be a fund that has raised or is raising for something really, really niche and scores quite well on strategy. We'll come into the actual criteria in a sec, but scores quite well on strategy because it's really clear what they do, Uh but they just haven't done it before and don't do it. And there's no evidence that that they know how to manage a fund. Clearly, you're weighting it too much towards the clarity of their strategy. So Uh that's how we thought about it. I'll run you through the ten T's and we can just dive into them. So you've got mm-hmm. thesis, uh, target selection, team, track record, terms, target return, timeline, tag along, ticket, and the secret source, which will which is a bit of a cop out because it begins with the. But <laughs> once you're in nine T's and you have something else to add, we didn't uh, we didn't have a lot of choice there. So so I can run through those, but broadly they help build a picture of not just. You know how, how good is a fund? But also, do we want to work with them and do we want them on our platform?
0: So I think I think, I think some of these are, are, are fairly obvious just from the name, mm-hmm. but there's a couple that I think are worth sort of digging into a little bit. For sure. So terms, I think, is, is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's probably more technical, but at the same time, I suspect it's probably one of those things that could be deceptively
1: important. Yeah, so the main things we look at there are, and again, some of them aren't exactly what you think they are uh, because we had to find a word beginning with T, but <laughs> I'll walk you through that one. So terms we're talking about the life of the fund. So some of that's back to stage, but a super early stage fund, you're probably looking at 10 plus years uh-huh. because the typical math to do is how long does it take to deploy? Could be three or four years. And then how long are you riding the the most successful investment? And the math you would typically do on that is time through to IPO. So Mm -hmm. for a super early stage fund, you're looking at 10 plus years. That's a good thing because if you're going past 10 years at that point, something's gone huge. Whereas a later stage fund might be two or three years pre-IPO with a three or four year investment period, you might be looking at closer to seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, the life of the fund. You're looking at management fees. Now, typically we talked about two and 20. So 2% a year management fee plus 20% carry. And we'd look into if, you know, the hurdle rate on the carry, if there's anything weird around catch up that makes it higher or lower when you look at it on a weighted average. And if management fees are higher or lower, typically 2% is standard. Some of the larger funds might ratchet their fee down because the fund's so large, they don't need to take 2%. And then you also look at the LP payout structure. So you look at the carry hurdle, you look at the waterfall, you want to make sure that, you know, money's not going off in the wrong places. So what, so what do you mean by the waterfall and GPLP
0: because I, I, I think it's a little bit different from how it works in an EIS fund?
1: Yeah so, so typically um, the way a fund will pay out is it will calculate returns based on what's gone in and then the first thing that comes off the top is the performance fee for for the manager. So they will they will work it out on usually on an IRR basis but you also see it on a money multiple and often it ratchets. So it might, you might see the 20% average, but it might also mm-hmm. be that they get to 20% once they've performed over a certain amount. We've also got funds that it might charge 25% carry if they you know really knock it out the park and deliver, you know, deliver returns that are kind of way in excess. So if you look at a three X plus uh, multiple on a fund, Uh, the the fund might charge more. Typically, what you then have is that goes out first, and then the investor or the LP will get whatever's left after that. Mm -hmm. It's important to say that a lot of the returns I've been quoting, if I have quoted any, I think I have, are net of of those fees. So the best funds are still delivering or have delivered in excess of 30% a year after those fees have been charged. And okay. that's an that's an important one.
0: Okay. Um, tag along, which I was intrigued to see as a sort of separate thing. Mm. Would you, wh- why why do you see tag along as so important it needs to be in your list?
1: Well, actually, it's interesting because I didn't talk about this as one of the differences between EIS funds and, and LPGP funds, but it's actually one of the most interesting, and it's one of the most attractive for a lot of the people, a lot of the investors we're working with. Tag along here specifically refers to co investment rights. Uh, what does that mean? So co-investment largely when a fund or an institution or an individual invests early stage in a company, they will often have preemption rights. That means that if there's a future funding round, they get priority access to their kind of prorated allocation in that round.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then so so for example, if, if a company is raising 10 million, a fund that invested early stage might have the ability to write up to three to five million into that round before anyone else. Then there may be reasons why the fund chooses not to, to exercise those rights. It might be that the fund's thesis, right? Their, their kind of remit caps out series A and this is a series B round and they don't want to write it or they cap out seed and this is a series A round and they, they can't fill it because, you know, their, their remit is not to go beyond a certain round.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What they would typically do is say, right, we've got a 5 million allocation, we're either not able to fill it because it's our strategy, or we only want to write 3 million. That delta, so that 2 million or or anything up to the full amount, they don't just pass on it. They would typically then offer that to their underlying investors, who would then have the right to invest directly in this business during that round. That's called co-investment. Uh Now, that's really interesting because you don't get that with EIS funds. So what we have is we have a number of leading VCs, LPGP funds, who are giving their underlying investors the ability. Now, if you also think about the composition of that LP base, You might have large institutions, you might have pension funds, you might have whoever who either can't move quickly enough because a lot of co-investment comes at short notice. You know, Mm -hmm. you have 48 hours or maybe 10 days if you're lucky, or it's just not in their strategy to do direct. So we will have individuals and family offices who are investing in funds via Sprout actually because they want to deploy a meaningful amount more into co-investments, into companies direct. Uh And again, on the point, this could be way beyond seed stage. So it could be that actually they get the opportunity to do a pre-IPO investment. Um, I'll give you an example. One of the funds we're working with, their LPs in in a prior fund, had the ability to invest in Spotify 18 months before IPO,
0: Uh
1: which is really cool. Um, But it's also... profitable. (laughs) Crucially, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, they, they, people who did that did very well out of it. Sadly, Sprout wasn't around back then, but, you know, hopefully there'll be another Spotify. So I think that's also something that's really interesting. And it's another reason people invest in LPGP funds, mm-hmm. um, because of that, that ability.
0: Okay. Um, and, and the, 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 other one I wanted to ask you about was one that screams to be asked about really, which is the secret sauce. Yeah. <laughs> you picked out what is the secret source and how do you judge that because it sounds to me this is what probably, probably the most subjective of them all so
1: I think you can try and apply a, a, as much of a framework as you want and me being a former strategy consultant I'm all for frameworks but there's always something that you can't quite capture so mm-hmm. this was originally the 90s and when you're looking around there are a number of funds that either score too high or score lower than you'd expect and you can't quite articulate why
0: is that is that not a good thing in a way in that if you're sort of saying right we've got a score system and this we thought this was good and it's not or better than it better it scored maybe it's not Mm -hmm. as good
1: so so yes and no um (laughs) it comes down to how much weight you apply to it but there are a number of things that we aren't, weren't capturing with the other criteria that we wanted to to kind of capture. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. So what is the fund's reputation in the market? Mm-hmm. Have they backed any unicorns or notable names that uh, household names and, and everyone would know? Have they won any awards? What are their ESG credentials? The reason those are important is because capital has become increasingly commoditized. And venture capital yeah. you know we talked right at the start about how I wouldn't get into certain deals yeah venture capitals become a, as much about brand as a number of other things there are only a handful of huge deals a year that actually move the needle for the best funds and it's become all about getting into the best deals and therefore a fund having a better reputation in the market, or a really strong brand, or having been the fund that backed a unicorn in that space, or winning VC fund of the year last year, or whatever it was, actually can and should make a difference to future performance, because it might allow them to win that deal. The reality is that if you're a startup raising a seed round, and you've got two identical term sheets, one from an unknown VC fund and one from a VC fund that's got a really strong reputation and I don't know, backed Uber I'm making this up now it's quite obvious which fund you're choosing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and by extension back. To, I guess back to this conversation if you're a VC if you're a really good startup and you have a choice between the most reputable LPGP fund, an average LPGP fund and a an above average EIS fund with all the terms we've talked about and potential fees that apply, you're picking that leading. If you know what you're doing, you're picking that leading name in in the leading LPGP fund if you have any choice at all. So there are a number of things that, you know, from an investor and historical track record matter, but actually when you're looking forward, there are a number of unquantifiable or intangible things around the fund, what it's done, the strength of its brand that are actually likely to have an impact on its performance going forward. Flip side is there are a lot of funds with terrible reputations that no one wants to take money from. (laughs) And for legal purposes, we shall not be naming them on this podcast. But I'm Uh, sure people who know the space will be able to name a few.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. I think think, think the challenge for an investment perspective is... Is that changing over time? Because certainly, you know, it, it, you talked about a glut of capital and, and probably 18 months ago or a year ago, absolutely everyone would have said there's a glut of capital in this market. Lots of companies will have a choice of term sheets, choice of investor. Capital is perhaps is not as scarce as we initially worried, but it's certainly not as plentiful. Are there as many companies out there struggling to or... You know, uh, the companies out there who are going to have to go to, well, VCG VC with not such a good reputation because the money's just not there elsewhere.
1: So, I guess from a the funds, there's still a lot of dry powder out there. The funds are definitely tougher in terms of how they're looking at companies, um, which is probably not a bad thing. There's a lot more focus on things like revenue and profitability, which it's, kind of makes sense, right? There's just a flight to quality all over the place. And again, not a bad thing. So funds are being fussier in who they back. Mm -hmm. There's probably less appetite in VC world for the more speculative ideas that might be five to 10 years away from revenue. And investors are fussier over which funds they're investing in. There is still really strong appetite for VC investing amongst investors. Why? Well... When inflation's at 9 or 10%, there aren't many asset classes that have historically outperformed that. And, you know, we still see that, you know, you look at all the surveys from private banks that, you know, the most sophisticated investors are still allocating something like 15%, or 13 to 15% into VC. Uh-huh. But there is a flight to quality. And within that, you know, it's difficult if you're raising a first-time fund right now. It's difficult if you wanted to raise Brian Ventures right now. Mm. And if you're a VC fund that's done it five times before consistently, it's still a good time. If you're investing right now, I, kind of, I often say that it's a bad time to have invested in the last few years. It's not a bad time to be investing because valuations are down. But at the same time, if you invested early enough stage in the last couple of years, you might be all right because you're not looking for an exit today. So different stages are doing different ways uh, or performing differently. So super early stage, still doing well because people are looking for an exit in eight-ish years. They're not looking for an exit tomorrow.
0: Uh-huh.
1: The later stage investments have come off a bit more because the IPO market's not great. Um, and secondaries are doing quite well because there's a lot of people looking for liquidity in the market. And there are a lot of people who are prepared to take a bit of a write down in in on rounds that happened a year or two ago because they actually invested six years ago and they're still up a decent amount. And then there are hot sectors. I mean, we've seen climate tech and ESG or kind of ESG related businesses doing quite well and being quite popular, which is interesting because from our perspective, it's quite hard when you're looking at funds, Uh you know, newer sectors, there aren't a lot of funds that have a strong track record in those industries. So, for example, a lot of a lot of the climate tech funds are first time funds or started in the last few years, and therefore uh-huh. do not have an evidenceable track record. And actually, because it's such an early industry, a lot of the climate tech funds that have been around for ten plus years, their first couple of funds have pretty average track records.
0: Well, uh, yeah, John Doerr famously pumped a lot of money in and, and didn't do very
1: well. It, it's hard, right? Because it, it's pre it's pre market almost. If you were investing in climate tech fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you you've done a lot of good for the world, but a lot of those businesses aren't around now to see the market that they almost helped create. So there's a timing element as well. But it's it's an interesting market. I think it's a really exciting market. Thinking back to kind of venture in general, there's a lot of dry powder out there. Um, the reality is, people are still looking to invest in the best companies, and actually, historical data will will show you that kind of kind of post recession vintages typically are some of the best performing and a lot of the best Uh companies we know and see were founded during kind of economic downturns. So Uh timing's interesting. And again, the the best funds will be the best funds. I think there's a bit of a a cleanup in the industry, which a lot of people will tell you was needed in terms of quality of businesses getting funded, but also quality of funds that are raising. And I think it was needed. I mean, whether it's the LPGP world or the EIS world, I think you know, we've, we've seen, you know, between friends on this podcast, we've seen a lot of people <laughs> raise funds and you look at them and you wonder how that person who's never invested in anything has managed to raise that amount of money to invest. So I think there's, there's this real flight to quality now where people are much fussier about where the money goes, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of good places still to put it.
0: Okay. Well, that's, that sounds like an optimistic turn. What we'll do that now is turn to our favorite questions. Mm-hmm. Because you're not an investor, we won't go through all of them. But um, we'll, we'll, ask, we'll ask you a few of these and we'll see what, what your thoughts are. So tell us about a time you failed and what
1: you learned from it. I feel like it's a job interview again. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a VC-related one because I was having you think about this. So I, I invested in a fund. In 2021, in a sector, I won't name the fund, but it was in a sector that I thought was high growth and wanted exposure to, mm-hmm. but didn't understand enough. So for me, that's kind of perfect situation to, to back a manager. I put an amount, call it X, into that fund. Um, and then I did a co-investment into a really a business that I thought was very exciting in that space through the fund. And I put four x into the co-investment. The fund is doing very well, but a good mm-hmm. return on the, on a fund is is kind of a three x, right? Two to three x. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: Um, the co-investment has gone to zero,
0: mm.
1: and I got really excited because I thought it was a good direct deal. But I think it's sh- you know it shows you a why you should trust managers and not try and do it yourself. But b, the math should have been the other way around, where mm-hmm the kind of the fund is the is the bread and butter and kind of gives you a, a a much narrower narrower range of outcomes. and then the the upside comes from the direct. So yeah, that was the naive old me that won't happen again. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting one just in terms of you know asset allocation and actually how I've essentially it doesn't really matter what the fund does because I'm now just down off the back of that and you know there's a role for direct and there's a role for funds. But in, in my eyes, from my, you know, from for my portfolio at least, it should be clearly weighted towards funds so that you're not relying on, you know, a thousand X on the Directs to to make up for it.
0: Yeah, I certainly I I know I I tell investors or IFAs that they should be getting their investors to get to hundred investments. Once you've got to hundred investments, you know, through funds or whatever, you can play around to your heart's content. But you know, get that core portfolio in place and then Yeah. Then, then then you can actually do, um, you know, idiosyncratic things.
1: Yeah, it's the power law. And I think the other thing is, you know, you see a lot of angels who have three to five angel investments. Mm-hmm. That's not, you know, that's not how it works. If you're going early <laughs> stage, you need tens, if not hundreds, for the mm-hmm. portfolio to make sense. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, well, then the funds give you that natural diversification anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. I, I agree 100% with that. So you usually ask people about what they would change about the EIS or VCT industry, which you're not really involved in. I'll ask you, what would you change about the venture capital industry? Oh, I had an
1: answer to that. But oh. it's kind of, it's the same answer to both, really. Okay. So, so my personal view is that there should be some level of credentials required to raise a fund. Some experience investing or someone in the founding team who's an experienced investor. Whether like evidence, successful angel or professional investor. Uh Um, I I think, you know, I'm I'm quite a big cynic of, we've seen a number of people who have a good personal network and are seen as the finance person in their circles. It could be an accountant, it could be a financial advisor Uh and they decide to raise an EIS fund. My view is that's a recipe for losing people money. Some of them might succeed, that's fair play, but that's my view. And then I think the other one is around it's difficult right because this comes back to financial education so I think mm-hmm. the second one I would say is around the number of and, and it's difficult but I think I see a lot of people raising second time funds where there is no tangible evidence of return on the first time on the first fund now obviously investors are free to to, to invest in wherever they want but I think there should be something around I, I think it should be harder to raise without evidence or without some kind of track record. Put it, I don't think you see the more sophisticated investors going into those funds.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So I think naturally it's it's the way they, these funds are raising and who they're raising from that I think could could do with some tightening up.
0: Th- it sounds like the market's moving in that direction anyway, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a fund last week who essentially said to me, we've seen their deck, but it said to me, you know, we are... There's no there's no money in the UK. We're going to the Middle East to raise. I said there is money in the UK, but you can't go back to the people you raised from three years ago because you haven't done anything with their money yet. Mm-hmm. That's the reality, you know. If if you make people money, they'll come straight back. But yeah. I, th- I think it's that challenge if you can't keep going back to the same well unless you're evidencing performance. That's that's fair
0: enough. And I know Sprouts perhaps not be. It's still a relatively new venture in some ways, but what do you wish you knew when you started Sprout that you know now?
1: A lot. Um, <laughs> I've learned so much. So so I think the main thing for me is that the amount of education that's required. You know, We talked at the start about how on paper I was a sophisticated financial person who understood what to do with their money, right? If you look at someone uh-huh. with an economics degree and however many years in financial services, and I didn't. There is a ton of education required amongst professionals, high net worths, ultra high net worths around well, so take a step back, there's a ton of education required in the population about finance and their personal finance. Mm-hmm. Within people who are actively investing, there is so much education required on the private markets. Mm-hmm. Right through to within, you know, professional Investors, investment advisors, investment managers. And one of the reasons why VC is not more widespread is because actually, none of the major wealth managers have figured out how to offer VC or private equity. None of the private banks have figured it out. The IFAs are looking, at, I think everyone knows they want to do it, but there's this kind of, oh no, how do we do it? Because it's quite specialist, it's quite agile, it's quite niche, it requires a lot of time and effort. So we are doing. A lot of teachings, a lot of education with, you know, wealth managers where we are going in and explaining venture capital and private markets to financial planners so that they, you know, are able to have that conversation with their clients. I think when we started this, when you look at the numbers, it just makes complete sense to me, at least. I mm-hmm. might be, you know. Off in my own world, but No, you, it
0: makes sense to me as well. And I look at numbers a lot. So. Just the
1: two of us in our own world. <laughs> uh, you know, when you look at the numbers, it makes total sense. You know, mm-hmm. it's not for everyone, it's not all your portfolio, but it, but you know, I'm like a percentage of my portfolio should very obviously be in this asset class where the best funds have been doing 25-30% plus a year. I look at the data and it says the most sophisticated investors are doing 15% on of their portfolio into VC. And then I turn around and I look at the market and people aren't doing it. Uh, And it's not a regulatory barrier, and some of the the UK in particular, I think, is is a bit behind because some of the thinking is so tax led rather than returns led. So we're seeing, you know, across Europe, America, Middle East, everyone wants VC. So when you tell them they can get it, it just makes sense. I think the UK is moving and has moved, but the problem is, it's that final jump of. Okay, but how do I access it? And that's what we're trying to solve. So I think the the education required, like just putting the numbers out there alone, doesn't move the dial. There's a lot of handholding that we've needed to do, um, but it's going in the right direction.
0: Yeah. No, it's just, it's funny listening to you because I spent a decade as a fund manager, and I knew nothing about venture capital and pr- private markets. Really, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I worked in the quoted fund markets, UK, you know, UK and, and European equities. And and I came to this market and I I thought I knew a bit, but I, I really knew nothing when I first started in it. And I'm I'm kind of now I look back, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that because it feels like, hang on, yeah, you know, I spent I spent a decade working in investment. I
1: should know about this. But somehow I didn't. But I mean why 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 would you as well? Like it's it's quite neat. Ni- it's it's niche in that you know, you understand the concept of it, but you don't know the names. So even if you do understand it really well, mm-hmm. that's just level one. And then yeah. actually a lot of it's time. Like you could have at any point in the last twenty years figured this out. But you, yeah. you know, you had a lot of other things going on. I spoke to a family office last week where the the person who runs the office was just said to me, He said, I you know, if I spent all day, every day doing this, I could I could go and do it myself. But I have a job and a million other things to do. And it's great for me that I can lean on someone who can actually who is doing that work. I, th- I think the reality is, you know, it's the same. I, I don't stock pick in the public markets because, <laughs> I mean, maybe I could if I put all my time and effort into it. But I'm happy either you know investing in a fund manager or just tracking an index for the for a similar reason because I know that even if I could do it, I don't have the time. Uh-huh. And this is a similar approach where you know a lot of people want to be successful angels or successful direct investors, but actually building up quality deal flow can take years and and a lot of capital deployed because you probably need to be investing hundreds of thousands of pounds to build a portfolio that's large enough with meaningful enough relationships. And, you know, that's for some people, it's not for everyone. So I think it's just, it's just how it all fits together. You know, I don't need to preach to you because you're the converted, but I think that, um, <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's interesting. And there's a lot of ego as well, actually, um, specifically amongst ultra high net worths and family offices who don't want, they believe that they can see, they see everything and they've got access to everything. And therefore, you know, there's a journey to politely show people what they're missing or what they're not seeing. And then responding appropriately as people actually start opening up and, and being like, oh, this is really interesting. Tell me more.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that's a long journey. Um, having, having spoken to some IFA's myself, it, I know it's, yeah, there, there's a long way to go still, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, but I think it's, um, you know, everyone moves at different speeds. There are some people who move very quickly and are always looking for, for new things, and there are others who take time to convince. But, you know, the the data supports us, which is mm-hmm. a good place to be. Yeah. But there's a story you have to tell as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all sounds... It sounds like you're getting out there. So if anyone wants to know more about what you're doing at Sprout, where should they go?
1: So lots of places, primarily the website, which is www.viasprout.com. The via is in invest via Sprout. Or you can email me personally at johnny, which is j-o-n-n-y at viasprout.com or any other channels, but those would be the main two. I'm sure if there are notes for the show or something, we'll put the, we'll put the website in there
0: we will post links in our show notes as we always did
1: wonderful that wasn't planned by the way so i was just that's what i hear on other podcasts so i've seen that as well what...
0: <laughs> you stole my line and i don't mind at all <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on today johnny i've really enjoyed our chat that's been great
1: thank you very much for having me uh, i feel like we could go for another couple of hours but i'm not sure anyone would want to listen to that
0: <laughs> maybe we'll get you back for part two in the future yeah
1: exactly get all the questions coming in there we could go again
0: I hope you enjoyed Johnny's insights into the venture capital market. It's great to get a slightly different perspective, but also to hear from someone so positive on in the industry. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time.